There we go. Uh, If you don't know, we have a child development center here at our church. It's a wonderful, wonderful child development center and one of our great assets here at the church. And uh, some wonderful teachers and wonderful workers. And one of the things that's a blessing to me is I enjoy going down and visiting with the kids that are in there. Uh, The four and five-year-olds that are in there. I love going and hanging out. Are you hearing getting that? Feels like I need to dance. After rebuke, there you go. Just have that ready in case I need it. So, I'll stand on this side. Maybe that'll help. You guys need it more than that side does anyway. So, <laughs> I enjoy hanging out with the little kids. Uh, it's just a blessing. It's a great day, uh, way for me to break up my day to go down and visit with them because it's that age group is probably my favorite age group of any age group. Um, I, I just love watching them because so many of us don't realize that it's in that age group. It's when you're four and five and six that you develop so many of our life patterns and so many of our life habits that come up all throughout our life. I think one author wrote a great book series on everything I knew or I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. And that's so much more true than sometimes we even realize. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a little older and it's tough for me to remember what kindergarten was like. I don't have a whole lot of memories of when I was five years old, but there are some nuggets when I think of kindergarten that that I can remember. I can remember going to my kindergarten orientation and uh, my mom taking me in there and in my school we had two kindergarten teachers and we all sat in a big group and they were going to find out who our teachers were and I remember there was one teacher that was right out of college that was young and she was cute and uh, she looked so excited and the other teacher uh, was not to put her down but she wasn't young and she wasn't just out of college Uh, she'd been there a while and this was 1970 she had horn rim white glasses and big hair and uh, uh, and, and her dress looked like it was a homemade dress, which a lot of people wore homemade dresses. But she just looked scary. I remember just sitting in the chairs, you know, crossing my fingers and saying, please, please, please. And I got her. And so, and uh, uh, I came to find out that, you know, looks aren't always what they are, you know, firsthand what you think they are. She was a wonderful teacher and she taught us so many things. I remember when they called our name and I went with her and I was so scared. She took us into this classroom and in a kindergarten classroom for a kid that's never been in school, it's just a new world world. I mean, all the colors and, and there were painting things on the wall and there were pictures and letters and books and there were toys and crayons. And I remember just being overwhelmed with the sight in my senses and uh, watching these kids and there were some kids that already knew each other from church or from neighborhoods and that was kind of intimidating to me to watch these kids already forming up into little groups. I can also remember in kindergarten uh, that we had to take naps. And uh, every day during the middle of the day, we would get our mats out and we would lay them down and they would play some music and we would take naps and we hated it. And I don't know why I hated it. I wish that we could take naps today. Amen. I mean, it, uh, why don't we take advantage of it when we had it? But I remember taking naps and I come to realize that was more for the teacher than it was for us uh, to give her a break. But we took naps and then going outside to recess. I loved recess and uh, playing duck, duck, goose and tag and, you know, on the playground and we had all all those dangerous playground equipments like swings and twirl things and, and just the, the wonder of kindergarten and it all being so new. 
You know, when I was a kid, they didn't have preschool and, and a lot of nursery schools. And so kindergarten was the first time for many kids to develop social skills. It was where we learned to interact with one another. And you learned early on in kindergarten, uh, and even in first grade, didn't get grades. They didn't give you a report card that said A, B, or passing or failing. Uh, you got a report that would determine whether or not you could play well with others. And that came to be the big thing. Does he or does she play well or get along with others. And I found out that was a big deal because one of the little boys, and I always remember because he had red hair, and I don't want to stereotype red-haired people, but he had red hair, and he bounced off the walls. He was uh, just one of those kids that just had so much energy, and uh, he got the dreaded does not play well with others on his uh, report, and I know that because he had to sit at a table all by himself and uh, during our share time or visiting time because he couldn't play well with others. Um, you know, when you think about that, playing well with others is still something that's important for us today. Maybe not as important as it should be in many of our lives. I wonder if we gave out report cards for this week on how well we played with others, what would your grade be? What would your report say? How would it say you did in playing well with others? Because you see, it is important. Matter of fact, it's important to God. The Bible tells us that each one of us were created and we were saved to live and to, to function in community, not alone. We were to function and live with other people, to interact with each other. Matter of fact, when you became a Christ follower, when you began to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you became a part of a larger community that we call the church, represented by a local body. And learning to play well with others in our local community and in our local body is very important to God. And I think sometimes you and I forget how important it is. And one of the things that we've been studying in our passage from Ephesians is just how important it is that we treat one another in the right way. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians. If you've got it uh, in your order of service, you can look at it. We're in our study of Ephesians. We're following along and uh, going verse by verse and looking at some of these promises. And uh, what you need to know is learning to get along with others or how we interact with others is so important to God that here in chapter 4, and we're in the first part of chapter 4, as we transition from all the truth and the doctrines and, and those things that were in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the promises of God, and move into the practical aspects, how we live that out before God or before Paul ever gets to talking about what the church is. He's about to claim the promises of the church. Before he talks about how the church can be effective, before he talks about what the church is called to do, he's going to address the unity in the church and how important that is. He's going to address how important it is that we learn to get along. Because you see, unity in the church, how we interact with one another is the life force of the church. If the Holy Spirit is what empowers us, empowers us, it is the unity, it is our ability to function as one body that moves us into our mission. And so many people in the church don't realize that. So many people in the pew don't realize how important that is. Now, if you've been with us, walked with us, and you've studied with us, you know that, uh, that we looked first at these two verses in Ephesians uh, 4 last week and looked at the promises of God for each of us as individuals. And, I, and if you missed last week, I, I want to tell you last week was one of those messages, it was one of those truths that I wish somebody had told me 25 years ago about how we are first called to be who God's called us to be before we can ever do what God's called us to do. So many people in the Christian life are trying to do what God's called them to do in their own power, and you can't. 
You have to understand who you really are in Christ and where that power comes from before you can do anything else in the rest of this book. And he gave us some personal promises. And this morning what I want to do is look at these same verses, but I want to step back and get a big picture. Because Paul is beginning to explain how the church can be who God called it and saved it to be. And the first thing he's going to address is this idea of getting along with others, this idea of corporate promises, this idea of unity. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now that's where we stopped last week, and that was one of the truths that we claim that, and we take that, and we make it ours. Make every effort, and this is our key verse for this morning, make every effort, commit yourself to keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called with one hope when you were called. There is one faith, there is one Lord, there is one baptism, and there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now when you read that and you, you hear that and you talk about that, We understand that those characteristics that he gave last week of how we're supposed to live in claiming the promises of God, humility and patience and gentleness and love, those are also the characteristics that allow us to get along with others. They're the things that you learned in kindergarten when you were taught, how do you get along with others? Those are some of the characteristics that you were taught. You can't be prideful. You've got to be humble. You you can't always be wanting your own way. You have to be gentle. You have to be kind. You have to be patient. You have to be long-suffering. And you have to put the needs and the wants of others above yourself. We see those same things that are the characteristics of you and I when we begin to claim who God calls us to be. Those are the characteristics that allow us to function as one body in the church. Now, when you say the word unity and you talk about the word unity, it's, it's, you hear a lot about it in the church. There's a lot of sermons preached on it. There's a lot of songs sung. But I'm afraid all of that stuff is just talk. Because, see, my worry is I think most people in the church body don't understand how important unity is to God. How important it is to a healthy and effective church. And more importantly, I don't think you and I recognize how accountable we are and will be to God for whether or not we promoted and preserved unity or whether or not we tore down and brought destruction and disunity. Because you see, we miss it. It's not something that's glamorous. It's not something that, that, that we put on banners. But it is the first point that Paul tries to get us to understand that we are called to preserve, to keep, to make every effort, to hold on to unity. And there's a couple things that jump out about this that I want you to see to understand why it's so important. First of all, we don't create unity. You and I don't make the church united. It says here in this passage that God created unity. See, it's not our job to make it happen. We're not looking to you so that we can be united. God's already created unity. It's something that he did, and it's something that he continues to do. We can't put it on. We can't do things to make it happen. It is already a reality. Our job is not to make it. Our job is to keep it. And what he's trying to help us understand is is that unity doesn't come from outside, it comes from inside. And he lists seven things that, that people go back to to help understand what unites us as a church. Seven things, seven principles that are the key to keeping a church as a church. And not just First Baptist Church, but all churches together. 
These are the essentials. These are the things that we don't hit on. These are the things that we don't pull away from. These are the things that we cling to because it is the glue that binds us together. And what did he say there in verse 4 and 5 and 6? He said, we are one body. Different backgrounds, different views, different ideas, different thoughts. But we come together as one body recognizing that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. We are one body, one spirit. The idea that we all have the same Holy Spirit working inside of us. Do you understand that this morning? That the Holy Spirit that is in you is the same Holy Spirit that is in your neighbor? The person that's sitting beside you has the same Holy Spirit, the same blood of Jesus Christ flowing through them. That unites us. That gives us a general purpose. It gives us a general direction. And you and I are called because of that one Spirit. He says we have one hope. You see, our hope isn't in anybody else or anything else except Jesus Christ. Hope is a confident expectation. We are expecting that Christ will do what he says he will do through us and in us and in our church. Our hope as a church is not a program. It's not in a new preacher or a new music guy or new activities or new things. Our hope is Christ and Christ alone. That is what unites us. He says we have one Lord, one person's in charge. It's Jesus' church. He's in charge. He is our Lord. He's in charge of me and everything that I do. He's in charge of you and everything that you do. We have one faith. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Christ and Christ alone. We have placed our faith in Christ. And by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his life, you and I become united and a part of something. It says we have one baptism. Talking about the symbolic idea of being baptized under the water. Baptism is not only an example of, of what it means to accept Christ into your heart. Baptism is an example of how we become a part of the church. When you get baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you are being baptized symbolically as a member of the church. You are saying symbolically, I am a part of something. I am a part of a local body. I am a part of Christ's body. He says we have one baptism. Then he also says we have one God. We serve the author of this book, the Word of God. We serve the Creator. And it is those seven things that create unity. Paul's already told us that the things that divide us have been torn down. The color barriers and the racial barriers and the the attitude barriers and the economic barriers and all those things have been destroyed and torn down. There is neither Greek nor Jew nor poor nor rich nor Jew nor Gentile. It's all been destroyed. And what unites us now are these seven things. These seven things are the glue that hold us together. You see, unity is internal. Unity is not uniformity. He doesn't say that we all have to dress alike or that we all have to agree or that we all have to think the same things or that we all have to do the same things. What he tells us is uniformity is something that you put on. Unity is something that works its way out. And sometimes we confuse the two. You see, uh, unity is not based on, on where we live. It's not based on the community that we come from. Unity is not based on where we grew up. It's not based on where uh, our parents go to church. It's not based on how long we've been in one church. Unity is not based on the group that we sit by on Sunday or our small groups or the preacher or, or the front that we may put up on Sunday. See, we talk about unity a whole lot in all of our churches, but none of those things are the keys to unity. Unity is found in Jesus Christ. 
in that one body, in that one spirit, in that one baptism, in that one hope, in that one Lord, in one God. Unity is something that Christ has already done. It's not something that you and I are called to do. Unity is based on these truths. You know, last week, we had the, the guy that tunes our pianos in. He comes in about once every six months. And he tunes the three pianos that we have here at the church. And I, I followed him around and I watched him tune the pianos that were down in the other room. And he had this uh, little instrument and he had these sets of tuning forks. And he got these tuning forks out. And I never understood why do we pay this guy so much money to tune pianos, you know, because I'm not musically inclined, so I didn't know. So I wanted to watch and I wanted to see how long. Because it takes him two hours, two and a half hours or so to tune three pianos. And he sat and he went note by note with his tuning fork. And he went to our three different pianos, and and even though they're three different style pianos, and they look differently, and they they were created differently, and they they have different uh, textures, and they're they're different uh, types, when he was done, all three of those instruments were tuned to one tune, because he tuned it to something that was central to all three, the tuning fork. And that's how unity works in the church. You see, unity happens because we are tuned to one truth, the truths that I just laid out. And when we are tuned to those truths, no matter where we are, no matter what's going on in our lives, we are united with the body of Christ. But let me tell you what happens in the church and what we call unity. What would have happened if while he was tuning this piano, instead of breaking out those tuning forks, he would have wheeled the piano that's down in the other room down here and he would have tuned this piano to this piano. This note to that note. This note to that note. What if he'd have got all three? What if we had a whole room of pianos and he tuned all the pianos in the room to this piano? They would have sounded the same, but they wouldn't have been in tune. Because all it takes is for one key to be off on one and then the key is off on all of them. You see, that's what we do in the church. Instead of tuning our lives to the truths of Jesus Christ and making that what unites us, we tune into a person or we tune into a group or we tune into what this person said. And we may all get together and tune in together to that person, but that doesn't mean it's united because it's not tuned into the one who holds the right key. What unites us as a church are these seven truths of God, seven promises that he makes. You see, without that, it's just a loud noise. It's not music, and we were called to create music with our lives. And the only way that happens is if we all together get in the right tune. That's what unity is. God creates unity. We don't. The second thing that jumps out here is I don't think... We make unity a priority in the church because we don't understand how important it is to God. So I think we talk about it and we sing about it, but we don't work at it and we don't make an effort to preserve and promote it because we don't understand how big a deal it is to God. The Bible teaches over and over and over again 
That unity is one of those priorities of God. That without unity, we can never be a healthy church. Without unity, we can never be an effective church. Without unity, we can never be the type of church that God is calling us to be. You see, it is that place of unity when we all come together, agreeing on these principles, loving each other humbly, uh, seeking each other's needs, serving God. That is when the Holy Spirit's power is released through the church. Now, God works apart from that, but he never sustains it. Because if we are working apart from the tune that God is playing to our own tune, to our own note, it will never be sustained over time. And until we understand as a body and as a corporate church that we are called to work together, we'll never be the type of church that God's called us to be. God is calling us to unity. You see, a divided church is a dying church. And when you have division in the church, it doesn't matter. It may take weeks, it may take months, it may take years, but that church will die if it's not addressed. Unity is that important to God. How important it is to God? Listen, 1 Peter 3.8 says, live in unity with one another. Proverbs 133.1 says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters come together in unity. My favorite passages. Romans, over and over again, 7-4, belong to one another. 12-10, be devoted to one another. 12-14, honor one another. 12-16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 15-7, accept one another. Romans 15-14, instruct and guide one another. Galatians 5-13, serve one another. Our passage here, bear with one another in love. 1 Corinthians 13, what we know as the love chapter used in almost every wedding. That's not talking about a romantic love. It's talking about how the church is supposed to treat each other in the church. You see, God says the one another stuff is a big deal. That grade that you got on how you get along with others is a big deal to the kingdom of God. Because not only does it change your life, but it changes the love and the dynamic that we find in the church body. It's a big deal to God. God thinks that other stuff is pretty important. Listen to Proverbs 6. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among his brothers. See, it's a dangerous thing to divide the body of Christ. That's how big a deal it is to God. So important that on Jesus' last night, when Jesus was in the garden, before he was to be arrested and crucified, he is praying for his disciples. Do you know what he prayed for them? He didn't pray that they preach powerful sermons. He didn't pray that they have wonderful worship teams. He didn't pray that they had great small groups or that they would draw big crowds or have beautiful buildings. You know what he prays in John 17? He says, Father, I pray that they might be one with another. That they might be united. You see, unity is a big deal to God. And it's a big deal in the church. And it's a big deal to what God's calling us to. God creates unity. It's already here. It's already inside of each one of us. God develops it. It's a promise for us to claim. Unity comes from him. And it's important to him. It's vital to the health of our church. So where do you and I come in? If we don't create it, if it's important to God, what do we do? What did he tell us in verse 3? Make every effort. Do everything that you can is the way the Greek says it. 
to keep. Now, some of your versions say to preserve. To preserve the unity of the Spirit of God through the bonds of peace. He's talking about in the body of Christ. You see, you and I need to understand that everything we do, I want you to listen to me, every action, every attitude, every word that we use towards one another, about one another, with one another, around one another, in the church body, is either going to work to preserve and promote unity or it will work to deteriorate and destroy it. There's no middle ground. Either you are building up the body or you're tearing down the body. And Paul says you and I's responsibility, our job is to make every effort to do everything that we can to promote and, and to pledge ourselves and to push unity within the body of Christ. So what is our job? We are to have a heart for unity. We are called to have an action and heart that preserves unity in everything that we do. And let me just say this, that doesn't mean we all get along. Because if we're a family, all of our families have disagreements, right? If your family doesn't, I've got some counseling that I can do with you. I used to have couples, you know, that would tell me, my wife and I, we are both pretty strong-willed and we're both pretty determined. When we were dating, uh, our dating relationship, believe it or not, was not one of these uh, ooey-gooey, huggy kind of relationships, okay? Uh, we loved each other and we were committed to each other and, and uh, I was more in love with her. We said, away 26 years this last Wednesday. Uh, thank the Lord she's put up with me that long. But uh, when we were dating, people would always say, you guys will never last, Say, why? Because y'all just say what you think. You just tell each other and you just talk it and and y'all get in these disagreements. And these other couples, they, I would, we're never going to fight. I'm never going to, we will never, we will always get along. Well, they're all divorced now. (laughs) I'm not saying that you can't always have kind words, but I'm saying there's going to be disagreements. You're different people. And when we come together in the body of Christ, there are going to be disagreements. We're going to see things differently. We're going to want things differently. We are going to to pursue things differently. And it's not disagreements that hurt unity. It's how we handle our disagreements. And it's the same thing in a marriage and it's the same thing in the family. You see, our job, even in disagreements, is to promote unity. Our job, even when we don't agree, is to preserve the unity of the body. Let me just give you a few things. If we voice our disagreements in anger, you're tearing down the body of Christ. If you voice your disagreements with a controlling or judgmental spirit, you are tearing down the body of Christ. If you voice your disagreements by talking about people instead of talking to people, you are tearing down the body of Christ. If we voice our disagreements with the intent to tear down or to sow some kind of discord, you are tearing down the body of Christ and you're wrong. But if we voice our disagreements with the spirit of love and respect and grace and compassion and patience, what happens is we foster, we preserve a healthy dialogue as we try to pursue and see where God's leading us as a body. So we are called to preserve 
And the problem that happens in church is, is when disagreement turns to division. Because you see, if we continue to voice our disagreement with those things above, all of a sudden division rises up in a church. And when division rises up, it has to be addressed. Because if division isn't addressed, it becomes a poison that can destroy a church from the inside out. You don't believe me? Listen to what Paul says to the Romans. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary teaching that you have learned keep away from them for such people are not serving the lord jesus christ but their own desires and their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the minds of naive people see we can disagree but when it comes to causing division when it comes to splitting and hindering the body of christ it becomes sin and it has to be addressed if it's not addressed it will destroy the unity in the body. So how can we preserve unity? How can we seek to promote it? Well, Paul's already told us. If we would put on those four principles we learned last week, we'd have a lot more unity and a lot less disagreement and division. It says be humble, walk in humility, not pride. You don't always have to have the last word. You don't always have to be right. You don't always have to have your way. Walk in humility. It says walk in gentleness, meekness. What does that mean? It means you're not here to fight your fights. You're here to fight other people's fights. Not take up their offense, but come to their defense. It means you're here to meet the needs of others, that you use the power that God's given you, the abilities that he's given you to lift up others above yourself. Gentleness. It says patience. The word there, patience, is long-suffering. What does long-suffering mean? It means you get out of the way and let God take care of people when they offend you or they hurt you or they hinder you. You're patient. God is in control. You recognize that and you allow him to do what he's going to do. Then he says we need to bear with one another in love. What does that mean? This is so important in the church. We give each other the benefit of the doubt. Instead of automatically jumping to a negative conclusion, instead of automatically drawing our own scenarios and our own conclusions, we step back and we allow God in the middle of it and we allow the benefit of the doubt to go to our brothers and sisters. We treat them with love. We encourage and we lift up. See, our job, church, is to walk in a way, to disagree in a way, to trust God in a way that promotes unity. And furthers his kingdom. Our responsibility as the body of Christ is to understand how important unity is and to make every effort, every word that comes out of our mouth, every prayer that we pray, everything that we do with a goal that it is going to promote unity in the body so that when we come together united, the Holy Spirit's power can be released in a corporate way. That's when the world begins to change, that's when communities begin to change. That's why the psalmist writes, how good and pleasant is it when brothers and sisters come together in unity. He says it's like the oil being poured down on Mount Hermon, on on Jacob's head. The oil was always a, a sign of the Holy Spirit. It's like this overflowing oil pouring and soaking through the blessings of Jacob. So that's what it looks like to the world. When the world looks at the church, instead of seeing division, instead of seeing separation, instead of seeing us talk about we don't agree with this church for this and that church for that, and I'm not saying compromise. We can't compromise these seven principles. But I'm saying we need to be united 
as one with every believer that holds to those seven things. And in the body of Christ, in the local body, in this church, we are called to do all that we can to promote unity as we seek God's will, as we seek God's direction. See, the path to a healthy church, to a growing church, to a faithful church, to an effective church, always flows through unity. Heard unity described as being like a puzzle. If you've ever put together one of those thousand-piece puzzles, you lay them all out there on the table, it looks like it'll never come together, but there's a plan, right? See, before the puzzle was even split up, there was a plan. And God had a plan for his church. And he splits us up into different pieces and we're different sizes and we're different shapes and we're different colors. And sometimes when you look at this piece and this piece, you think there's no way they'll ever go together to form anything. But as the puzzle begins to come together and each piece fitting where it goes, all of those colors begin to blend and that plan begins to come together and it becomes something bigger than it ever could have been on its own. That's the church. And that's who you and I are called to. See, we are called to preserve the unity of the body. Now, as a close, I want to talk to you for a minute personally. I want to speak from my heart. We're a family. You can share with family. This is a timely message. All of Ephesians is a timely message for this church body and for each one of you that are a part of this church. Now, it may seem strange to say, well, you know, this message on unity... Uh, And maybe it comes a little late. I mean, this church has gone through what some would call a church split in the last year. Why wouldn't this message here a year ago or two years ago? Because it wouldn't have mattered. Because this is a message for today and for you and I. Because God is in control and he has his reasons and his purposes for everything. This message is for this body as we move forward with God. As a pastor, my first six years here as pastor at First Baptist Church, there was not unity at this church. May it look like it. May all sounded similar, but we weren't tuned to the right instrument. Matter of fact, let me just be honest. If you go back and look at the history of this church, and and I'm not trying to make some of you mad that have been here or offend any of you that have been here a long time, but I don't think we've been united in this church for at least 15 years. Two of the three pastors that came before me left not of their own accord, and it wasn't handled right. That's a sign of disunity. And instead of dealing with it, and instead of looking at what caused it, we would rather smile and put on a good face and worry more about our reputation in the community than addressing it. Even so, seven and a half years ago when I came here, I knew all of that, but God called me here. For the first five years of my ministry here, I begged and pleaded with the Holy Spirit to allow me to address it to talk about unity, to address what's causing disunity, to call it out, to call out the division. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow me to do it. He continued to impress upon my heart and anyone that I talked to that he was going to take care of it in his timing, in his right way, at the right place. My job was to 
preach and to pray and to pastor and to trust him. Now let me just say this. The disunity in this church was not about a person. It wasn't about a group of people. It wasn't about a music style. It wasn't about worshiping at two different places. People would tell me all for the last couple of years, if, if we would all just get together in one room and have one worship service, then we would be united. Be like a bunch of pianos tuned to something besides God coming in a room. may have sounded good, but it wasn't unity. If we would do this, or we would do that, or, or maybe if you do what this group wants, or do what that group wants, then we would be united. No, we wouldn't. Because you see, it wasn't about any of those issues. It was a heart problem. It was a spiritual problem. And God said, I'll take care of it. I'm here to tell you this morning, as we talk about Ephesians and where the church is going, he has and he is. And I'm here to declare to you as a pastor of this church that it's a new day. And that may not have been who we were, but it is who we are and who we will be. And this is the first time that I've said anything from this pulpit about anything that's gone on here in the past year and a half. And it'll be the last time. Because I'm not looking back. Because I know what God is doing and I know what God has done. And I want to tell you and challenge you that no matter who is here, no matter where we go, no matter what we do, it will be with a passion and a heart that preserves and promotes the unity of the body of Christ. We are moving forward as one body, with one spirit, with one hope, with one Lord, with one faith, with one God. Because this is his church. It's his vision. It's his unity. I encourage you, see what you're doing to foster that and dive in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for his truth. And God, I pray, God, we don't create unity, so we're not going to try to create anything or make anything happen. We're just going to trust that, God, you have built us this place united. And God, that means people that are here, people that are new, people that are coming, people may not even know they're supposed to be a part here. They're just drawn to what the Spirit is doing. God, we trust you. And we commit ourselves that we will all foster community and unity in this church. God, I thank you for what you're doing here. God, it always hadn't been easy. It hadn't been easy to wait. It hadn't been easy not to want to take care of it my way. But God, you are building something here bigger than each one of us. And it is going to shake this community. It's going to shake families. God, it's going to shake each one of us. But it's going to take each person in here committing themselves to doing all that they can to preserve and promote unity. Loving each other, lifting each other up, caring for each one another, walking in humility. God, we trust you. In your name, amen.